You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you don't mind. We wrapped up the uh, sermons we were doing in Psalms and the model prayer, and uh, today I'm going to move in a different direction today and kind of go back to something significant that happened back in July and something that I told you I would do and just now getting to. Back in July, the uh, church body approved um, a new set of documents for our church. We, we call them bylaws, but for some of you who are not kind of connected to church or not kind of used to that terminology, basically it's a set of documents that gives guidance to what we do and what we're about. And in the rewriting of that, that took about a year and a half, two years, um, we, we tried to make sure that everything that was in there had a, had a biblical basis. I mean, imagine that. A church that believes in the Bible is considering that the Bible has something to say about how we do church. That shouldn't be too surprising. But we needed it written down. We needed it something that would hold us accountable because your pastor has a, well, it's kind of a problem and I guess a, a good thing at the same time. The way God has wired me, I'm constantly looking five years out. I can't help it. That's just how I'm wired. I'm always looking out five years and saying, okay, Lord, what kind of church do you want at that point? And I believe that when we seek him and we do things by his word, by his authority, by his power, and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I think uh, we can see great fruit in the days ahead. So what I wanted to do is I want to kind of come back to what we did back in July. And I want to kind of, as, as Ed said, lay some groundwork um, talk to you about how you are to be involved in that as a part of this church and what we can expect over the next five years. Um, There's a lot of things coming in the years ahead, and I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer. I don't know if I should use that term, Debbie. I I don't know if your name is Debbie. I don't want to kind of accuse you of being a downer by any stretch, but there are things that are coming that the Bible actually has told us about that we've got to be prepared for. But I also think that in the days ahead are going to be some of the most fruitful days that we've ever seen with gospel work. But I think we need to go back to the foundations. I think we need to go back to the, the, to the footers, to, the, to the what holds it all together. Because if we get this wrong, if we miss this, nothing else we're going to do is going to matter. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or have passed away. Then he, answered, then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. Father, we pause at this moment to give you thanks and praise for all that you've done in our lives this week. You have done amazing, amazing things. And Father, while we go through this life and there's all kinds of distractions, Lord, I have found that if we just take a moment, if we just look around us, we'll see your hand working in mighty ways. So Father, in the ways that we witnessed, in the ways that we haven't even discovered yet, we give you praise and worship. For Father, you are sovereignly in control. Although the world is in chaos and all those seems as though things are out of control, you are very much in control, and we thank you for that. Father, guide us in your word this morning. Open our hearts, open our minds, that what Paul speaks to this church in a place called Corinth is extremely relevant to where we are today. Lord, we love you. We seek your face, we seek your guidance, and we seek to honor you alone. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now I get to be a, a college dad. That's a kind of a new thing for me. Uh, my daughter's at East Carolina, and uh, all that comes with that, with her being out of the home and kind of getting used to the house being a little bit different. One of the things that privately I was looking forward to, and yes, this is self-centered. I got that. You can go ahead. I'll go ahead and admit that on the front end is college football. I mean, can we just say that I'm looking forward to being able to go to some college football games uh, with my family, some I haven't been able to do for a long time. And we had the opportunity to go just a few weeks ago. And I was excited about this because it, it's, it's the game. I love football. I love watching the game, especially college football. But it's all the stuff around it, right? It's, it's all the tailgating, and, and we didn't get to do all of that. Um, we wanted to kind of ease in slowly maybe the next time. But we go on the campus early, I mean, really early that day. The game's like at 6 p.m. that afternoon. And we spend the whole day with my daughter, meeting her friends. And, and there's this massive parking lot. And people have got tents and grills. And, I mean, there's so much food. There's no way. I think it would have fed everybody in the stadium with all the food that was being cooked in the tailgate parties. And there's all this buildup and all this hype, and everybody's got their colors on, and people with their faces painted. And, and as, as the day goes on, the excitement builds, and it builds, and it builds, until finally you walk in the stadium, and you know, they got all the music playing, and all this stuff going on, and the band, and, and then the teams finally come out on the field. And finally, we get to the moment, the moment we've all been waiting for, quite frankly. It wasn't the hot dogs. It wasn't the steak. It was the moment that the ball gets kicked off. Although I will say, there's probably a lot of people who come just for the tailgating, but not me. I'm ready for the kickoff. What if, what if in that moment after the teams are on the field, everything's ready to go, the announcer comes on and says, well, we are uh, pleased to announce today that instead of a football game, we're going to have some opera. Well, that's what we call a bait and switch, okay? We, we've all come for a football game. You've got us in the stadium, we've bought our tickets, we've bought our food, we've got all of our gear on, and now you're going to bring somebody who's speaking another language, singing in something I really care about. I'm not a big opera fan, by the way. And so I came to see a football game, but now you're, you're giving me opera? I'm not going to be too pleased with that. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll try. I'll give it five minutes, but after that, me and probably eight or 10,000 more people are going to head for the gates. There might be a few people that stay, but probably not many. I think there's going to be disappointment. I think there's going to be anger. I think there's going to be people at the service desk looking for their money back. Now, where am I going with this? The church of Jesus Christ, 
We're referred to as evangelicals. We are referred to as people of the book, people of the cross, people of the empty tomb. Would it not be the worst of all things that the church of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died to secure and to start and to empower, to do the work that he's given it. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a terrible thing if that very church and, and the believers who followed Jesus, the disciples of Christ, all of a sudden make their life about something other than Jesus? It would almost be like a bait and switch. The folks that are close to you, the folks that know you, they know that you're part of a church. They know that there's something about this that you do on Sunday morning that's changed your life. But what's amazing is, is how much of our lives are spent focused on things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Confession time. Confession time. In, in preparing for this, I, I read something that Paul wrote at the very beginning of this letter. This is a church that Paul planted if you go back to Acts chapter 18, you can find his first time he came into Corinth and he gets this church started and he preaches the gospel there and he spends a year and a half of time in this particular area. And um, at the very beginning of this letter, he says something in chapter 2, verse 2, and I want to read it for you because it, I, th I, think it, I think it sets the tone. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Over the last 19, 20 months, I've had multiple conversations about masks, wear them, not wear them. I've had multiple conversations about, with various people about vaccines, non-vaccines, shutdowns, no shutdowns, how are we going to do church in this current environment back when it all started I've even had conversations about the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation about what it all means and is it being implemented now. And I've had conversation after conversation about a myriad of things that, quite frankly, I don't know much about. And I hate to admit to you, I hate to admit this because I've had to repent of it in preparation of this sermon. But over the last 20 months, because of all that has been happening, your pastor has been distracted from the main thing. You know what the main thing is? Jesus' death burial, resurrection, ascension on high, and how that can change your life. Now, on Sunday mornings, I've done my very best to make sure that what I'm saying is gospel-centered, Christ-centered. But I can tell you during the week, too much, too much of my time has been spent talking about whether I should wear a mask or not. I'm not saying these things aren't important. I'm just saying they're not the most important. Do you find it interesting? I find this compelling. I find this very compelling because... With this pandemic, we've lost a lot of people. There's a lot of people who've died. I've had, I've had friends that have died. You have to, you've had family members. I'm looking at people in this room right now that have had family members pass away. There are people, young, even young people, who have, who have contracted this virus and have died from it. Now, do you find it amazing to me, and I find this amazing, that at the very moment when people's lives are at risk, that people are dying, young people are dying, that the church is distracted about lesser things? Do you find that to be, well, a coincidence? I don't find it a coincidence at all. Matter of fact, I think it's intentional. Now, we know as Bible-believing followers of Jesus that there's spiritual warfare. It's real. Distractions are part of that tactic, and I think I've been distracted. I think, I think we've all been a little distracted. I'm not on Facebook much, but when I'm on there, I find a whole lot of discussion about things that, quite frankly, 
don't matter. From people who are followers of Jesus, we're making the main thing something that ain't the main thing. Sorry for my English, but that's the best way to get it across. Paul has got to remind the church of Corinth about the main thing. This church had all kinds of problems. And because of where this church is, Paul knew there was going to be problems. See, Paul, Paul knew that when he planted this church, there was going to be problems. When, when Paul, on his second missionary journey, he's up in Macedonia. It's in the northern part, north of Athens, Greece. And he's up there in these places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And eventually he moves down to Athens, and eventually he moves even further south, south of Athens, into this little place called Corinth. And it was a, it was a strategic area for Paul, because when Paul looked at it, and if you pull one of your maps out of the back of your Bible or one of your Bible apps, you'll see this. There was a little strip of land that connected one large landmass to another large landmass, and Corinth is right there. So this corridor, kind of like the grand I-95 of the Roman days, was traveling right by Corinth, and Paul knew it. People from all over the world were traveling right through that little strip of land. Paul knew that because of the culture in Corinth, that this was not going to be an easy church to plant, get started, or establish. Well, some of the problems they had, well, the church was divided. They were arguing among themselves who was the greatest. Well, we're, we're going to follow Paul. Well, you follow Paul. We're going to follow Apollos, and, or we're going to follow this church. And they were all divided among themselves. Paul says that was the result of spiritual immaturity. They, they, were, they were immature. Paul, Paul said to them in chapter 3, he says, look, he says, you guys have never matured. It's, it's, like, it's like you're a bunch of toddlers. I gave you milk expecting you to eat me, but you never really moved on. The other problem is there's all kinds of sexual deviancy going on. Even within, the, even within the church leaders themselves that Paul has to call them out for. They were misusing spiritual gifts. That The Lord gives each believer of Christ a, a, at least one spiritual gift. It's a, it's a supernatural working of God in your life that, that you do something and you do it really well and it's been given for you to help build up the church. But they were misusing them, turning them around and making them something about themselves through pride and arrogance. So Paul had his work cut out for him. He writes this letter, and by the way, the first, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is actually the second letter. We don't have the first one. There was, a, there was another letter that was written that we don't have access to. So 1 Corinthians is actually a second letter, and I, I would imagine that that first letter was also dealing with some of these problems. We don't know for sure. But he does allude to it in this letter. But here's the point. Discourse after discourse, lesson after lesson in this letter, Paul is dealing with problems. Well, when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, now, I've got to go to the foundation here. I've got to go to the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus, and I need to deal with that, and I need to deal with it very precisely, because Paul knew it's very easy to become distracted. We have churches all across the land that are distracted with politics, and arguing about who's the best. We have people that are arguing all over all kinds of things. And what's lost is this message. And this is the message the world needs today more than any other message. You have neighbors that are afraid. You have people that are angry, just angry. They don't even know what they're angry about. They're just angry. If you ran into any people like that, maybe that describes you. Just angry. People who have 
given up on truth and have now decided to listen to whatever the culture's telling them. That's exactly what Corinth was doing. So let's get into this, and let's look at the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. Look at verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now Paul starts out, and he says, first of all, have you ever had somebody say this to you, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news? Well, the gospel's the good news, but before we can get to the good news, Paul's got some bad news. He hasn't got to it quite yet, but he's going to get there. He says, on the first hand, he says, when I came to you, I preached the gospel to you, clearly with precision, without any compromise. And the people of Corinth received what Paul was saying. Not only did they receive it, but then they began to stand in it themselves. In other words, they began to not only receive the gospel, but then they began to tell others and to stand upon it and to trust the truth that Paul was proclaiming. And he says, not only that, but... He says, and by which you were being saved. Now that, being saved, what does that mean? Because oftentimes we think about salvation as that one moment in time, right, where we put our faith in Jesus and he changes our life, gives us brand new life. So what is this whole idea of being saved? It's almost like Paul is saying there's some kind of process of being saved. Well, on the one hand, yes, when you put your faith in Jesus, you were forgiven, your past was forgiven, it was as though it never happened. In that moment, you get, you're adopted by God. At that moment, your, your name is written down. The Bible says that, that God has a, a book of life. That name is written down there, and, and you are secure in that place of salvation or new life or new birth. But, but, but it doesn't end there. The Bible also talks about we, we're saved, but then we're in the process of being saved, which means we're then to grow up in Christ. We're to mature. We're not to remain as infants in Christ. and We're to, to grow in our understanding and knowledge of Jesus, who he is, what he did, his word, to grow up in faith, that we're not meant to be a bunch of spiritual infants. That the whole, the whole walk of of walking with Christ is to become more like him. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, he says you, you heard the gospel, you received it, you were saved by it, you were standing in it, and now you've begun to grow up in Christ. But here's the bad news. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That last phrase just wrecked me this week. I kept wrestling with that phrase. So here's Paul telling us about the gospel. He's going to get into what the gospel is. But, it, but before he can, Paul puts something on the table that every ministry leader deals with, but we don't often talk about. Paul puts a question mark right here in that opening paragraph because Paul realizes there are people in Corinth who've heard, who had some kind of response, but they didn't follow through. And it's something that was probably keeping Paul up at night. It's something that keeps me up at night. People who hear the gospel, have some kind of response, whether that be walking an aisle or a meeting in my office, and they understand, they acclimate somehow to the gospel, and we see that there was maybe some kind of change there, only to find six months later, a year later, they're gone and have no desire to follow Jesus whatsoever. Did they, did they, were they saved and they lost it? No. The Bible's very clear on that. 
But what the Bible does say is there are people who, who fall into religion and rituals, and they put their faith there rather than putting their faith in a resurrected Lord and King. And there's a difference between the two. You see, religion, the practice of religion, will never bring you into a right relationship with your Creator. It just won't. It'll make you feel good. It'll give you a little bit of respite from the world for a while. But when you go back out there, there's no difference between you and them. And the pressures of the world, the problems of the world, bear on your life just like they do everyone else's. And there's, a, there's something missing. The rituals never really actually fulfill that deep hole in your life. Paul says that there were people at Corinth who believed in vain. What does it mean to believe in vain? Well, the word vain means useless. It's only used six times in the New Testament. Paul uses it twice in this chapter. And he says this. He says that they believed, they started, but it was absolutely, for no purpose, no reason, it was absolutely useless. And the reason I know that that's the meaning of this particular word, because when we look at the rest of the chapter, what do we find? Look at verse 12. This is why Paul's writing what he's writing in chapter 15. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's an interesting question. Here's the problem. In Corinth, you have a Greek culture. And in that Greek culture, they believed that the body, the body was evil. That the body was, was no good. But the soul on the inside, oh, it was good. So the goal then is to get the soul, the good soul out of the bad body, that the, the soul is inherently good, but the body is inherently bad. So at death, the body must separate from the soul and give that soul the opportunity to be free and live to its full potential without any body. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, but listen to this. The Christians, the disciples of Jesus, you know what they were proclaiming? They were proclaiming a literal bodily resurrection as a core tenet of the faith. And the Greeks are like, are you crazy? There is no way that Jesus Christ resurrected with a body because the body's evil. Everybody knows that. Guess what was happening? That thinking was creeping into the church. And it was, it was going to the core of the gospel. And there were people who heard the gospel but were not changed by it. And as soon as they heard this other teaching, guess what they did? They ran towards it. So Paul says, I need to remind you of where power is. I need to remind you of the foundations because some of you have believed in vain, which actually means you didn't believe at all. You're just as lost as you can be. And just like Paul, what I share with Paul and all other ministry leaders down through the span of time is where are those people who said that they love Jesus and follow him? Where are they? Because I can name off a whole bunch of folks that I can't find. And it bothers me. The pandemic has made it worse. Those who study trends and those who study demographics, here's what they're saying. They're saying that 20% 20%, maybe even high as 30% of those who were regularly attending before the pandemic will never come back. That poses a major question, does it not? At some point, those folks were saying, hey, I'm a Jesus follower. But did they believe in vain? Did, was their faith somewhere else rather than Jesus? This is the stuff that bothers Paul. This is the stuff that bothers me. He says... I got some bad news. Not everyone has been changed by the good news. I had a, 
I had a friend back in our hometown, this has been years ago, and this guy was, man, this guy was solid, on fire for Christ. He started a ministry out of the church that he was attending. There was a food pantry, they had a clothing pantry, and they would just give stuff away, and it was huge. And our church would support that ministry for folks in need. And this guy was just really, really good at that ministry. And I got to know him through our connection to his ministry, and uh, man was passionate to help people in need. Well, one day he gets sick, and I was hearing about just how sick he was, and he apparently had an infection in his bloodstream, and what was really needed is that he would go about six blocks up from where he lived. He literally lived just really not far from the hospital at all, and what he needed was some antibiotics. What he needed was some medical intervention, but the church that he went to, the church he attended, didn't believe in medical intervention at all. They believed that you, you must pray and that, that if God's not healing, then it's because our faith is weak and we just need to bolster our faith and bolster our prayers and pray even more and pray even harder and, and wait for God to intervene. So that's exactly what they did. The church came together in the house and they were praying and they were praying and they were praying for God to heal. They were speaking in tongues and doing everything that they knew to do to, to bring healing. And they were demanding that God heal. And if God didn't do it, then it means that they had a lack of faith. And so they, they kept just working themselves up into a frenzy. And all the while, the man's getting worse, and the man's getting worse, and the man's getting worse. Finally, his wife says, you know, maybe we ought to take him to the hospital. And we're like, no, that, would be, that wouldn't be having our faith in God, now would it? His fever gets so high that he goes into a coma, and he dies, 42 years old. The reason I share that story with you is because the church at Corinth had been told where life could be found. They, they had been told clearly by the Apostle Paul that, that this is how you can go from darkness into light. And there were people who initially had some kind of response to it only to turn back to darkness looking for something there that was going to give them life when what could give them life was right in front of them. Don't be one of those people. Don't be someone who is connected to the church but never in love with Jesus. Don't, don't be the kind of person who who is constantly looking for something out there when what you're looking for is right in front of you that you've heard multiple times, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not rituals, not religion, not going through the motions, but surrendering your life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will change you from who you once were to who you will be and who he will make you to be. Amen. It's right in front of you. The healing is right in front of you. The power is right in front of you. Why would you look anywhere else? So then Paul moves on to the good news. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance. Notice this. Paul says, this was the number one priority. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried. So Paul says, okay, let's go back to the foundations here. Let's go back to who we are as a, as a people. Let's go back to what we're about. And he says to the church at Corinth, after all that they've been through and all that he's taught, in this letter, he says, now let me bring you back to the core issue. The core issue is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the core of the church. That is the core of who we are. We can't be about anything else. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So, so Paul starts out the letter dealing with the crucifixion. And interestingly, by the time he gets to the end of the letter, he's dealing with the resurrection. That's chapter 15. I want to show you some verses at the opening of this letter and what he says here 
about the crucifixion and about how his life has been ordered by that event. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says that I came to you, and my initial message to you was the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, in Corinth, there's lots of philosophers, lots of Greek philosophers, lots of eloquent teachers and speakers. And Paul said, I rejected all of that. Because Paul says, it's not about me. It's not about you falling in love with me. It's not about you seeing me as some great orator. The purpose of it was is that I came with you, came to you with simple, clear language that Jesus Christ was convicted of a crime he did not commit. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was beaten, hated, spit upon. He was convicted to die by Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests who broke every law they had to get this man convicted, but they couldn't put him to death themselves. They had to have Roman help. So they go to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him. I don't find anything that he's done wrong. So here, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you Barabbas. He's a convicted murderer. Or I'll give you Jesus. Which one do you want? And they cried out for Barabbas. So Paul is teaching the church at Corinth the story about Jesus and his crucifixion and what that means. What I find interesting here is that by the time Paul receives the gospel, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. What do we have? We have a full and complete theology of Christ. It's not something that was made up over time. Paul says that what I received is what I've given out. Paul received a deep theology of the gospel, and he gave that gospel out. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, he says in verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. In Corinth and in Athens and all of that region, oh man, the people of the day just love some new information. They love teaching philosophy and what the Greeks believed and what the Jews believed and what anybody else believed. And they, they, would, they would have long periods of time where they would just argue and debate. And they would use all kinds of eloquent words. And it was almost like one trying to outdo the other, who tried to outdo the other, who tried to outdo the other. And here comes Paul, and Paul has a simple message. Jesus died in your place. A historical event that happened. And Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit of the power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the wisdom of God. And this is where we end up. Either your faith is in the wisdom of men or in the wisdom of God. Either your faith is in some philosophy or some religion that man has come up with, or your faith is in Jesus Christ, the one who died publicly. 
There is no in-between. There is no second plan or other plan or side plan. It's one or the other. You are either walking in death or you're walking in life. You are either believing the lies of this world or you're following Jesus. There is no in-between. Paul says, I'm afraid that some of you have tried to mix the two. Rituals, religion, no relationship, no changed life. And the good news is, is that Jesus died. It says here, Paul says, go back over to 15. Paul says here that he died and he was buried. Why does Paul include that? Why does Paul include buried in the text, right? Well, you only bury dead people, right? I mean, kind of obvious that you don't bury people who are alive. Now, the reason Paul includes that is because he's making an argument here. He's dealing with an argument that the culture is already buying into, and even some in this church have bought into. And that is the idea that, that Jesus didn't actually die. Paul says that not only did he die, but he was buried in a tomb. The Romans were professionals at killing people. They didn't get that wrong. So Paul adds this in. So, so Jesus crucified and buried. He's going to next say that he's resurrected and seen by Peter and James and the 500 and the apostles. So, so what we have here is we have his death, but we have the proof that he actually died, that he was placed in a tomb. And in those days, the Jewish people nor the Romans would ever make a mistake about that. Not to mention that when Jesus died and they took his body off the cross, they wrapped his body in some 160 pounds of cloth and spices. There is no way under the sun that Jesus went into that tomb any other way but dead, stone cold, graveyard, dead, historical fact, period. He was dead. The good news is, is he died in your place. What does that mean? Let's imagine that I gave you my car, just let you borrow my car. I hadn't had that car long, but I'm going to let you borrow it because I'm just that kind of guy. So I'll let you borrow it. You take it out, you total loss it. Just, you just wreck it, destroy it. You don't have the money to fix it. You don't have any insurance to back it up. So I now have a truck that's destroyed, and you and I are looking at each other like, okay, now what? Well, I look at you and I go, you know what? I'm going to forgive you of that. Your accidents happen. Forgiveness always comes with a cost, doesn't it? You know this to be true. You know that when you offer forgiveness to someone, there's a cost involved, right? There's something you just have to let go of. And in this scenario, this illustration, there's some cost that comes back to me. I'm going to have to fix my truck. But not only that, we're going to choose to still be friends. I'm not going to hold it over your head. We're going to continue to be friends. I'm not going to bring it up five years from now. So I have to let go of any animosity I've got. I've got to fix my truck, which is going to cost me. But forgiveness, folks, is always costly. There will never be a time that you forgive somebody that didn't cost you something. And some of you haven't offered forgiveness because you think that it costs too much, that you just simply can't go there. But on that cross, as Jesus is dying, remember, he's not dying because of something he did wrong. Completely innocent. He was innocent in his thinking. He was innocent in his speaking. He was innocent in his deeds. He had never committed one single sin, not one, not one evil. The Bible says that there was not even anything evil in his speech. Perfect. He was God. And man. So if Jesus is on the cross and he's bleeding out, 
He's not there because of something he did. He's there because of what we did. And so therefore, we have to understand that with forgiveness, there is always a cost. And the cost that Jesus was paying on that day, on that cross, was my cost, not his. He, he, he had absorbed all of the sin and, and the evil upon himself that God poured out his wrath upon his only son in that single moment of time. Wrath that I deserve, wrath that you deserve, and God pours it out upon him, and then Jesus absorbs that to offer forgiveness to us. The church of Jesus Christ must look squarely and contently and longingly at the cross, which makes us a little uncomfortable. I read a story of a school, a school of theology up in Ohio. And this school of theology was wanting to promote some classes that they were going to offer. And some of those classes was on the crucifixion. So they decided to purchase some Facebook ads. I know that some of you have been in Facebook jail recently for some of the things you've posted. Maybe some of you are still in there hoping for a reprieve one day. Well, they were wanting to buy ads with Facebook. And when Facebook saw what they were wanting to put out, the descriptions of the class, one of the class was describing the crucifixion and what that class was going to cover. You know what Facebook said? Facebook said, uh, we cannot run that ad. It's too gruesome. It's too violent. It violates their policies. And so they denied running those ads because the crucifixion, as depicted in their description, was just was too graphic for people. Well, folks, we've got to stare at the cross squarely. We've got to confront the reality that was hanging on that cross, the blood, the gore, the anger, the hatred, all that's happening on that cross, we must look at we must look at it straight on, and we must realize that everything that we see on that cross and all of the pain and all of the gore is simply because of us and our sin and our disobedience and our evil. We, we cannot sanitize the cross, folks. We, we can't take what Jesus did on that cross and bring it down and make it more palatable for other people. What Jesus did on that cross, he did out of love and he did out of grace. What Jesus did on that cross and bleeding to death, and, and get this, I know you see the crucifixes, I know you see the paintings, but, but Jesus was naked upon that cross. I know that's hard to think about, but I need, you to, I need you to focus here for just a moment. I need you to see the cross and all of its gore and all of its pain and understand clearly and, and, and concisely that the reason Jesus is there is not because he did something wrong, but you did something wrong. And all of that pain and all of that suffering, we cannot ever sanitize or clean up for the world. And the simplicity and the horror that happens there is where we find life and peace. It's where I found life and peace. It's the only place you will find it. Paul says that this was according to the Scriptures. We can think of Isaiah 53 where Isaiah prophesies about that very moment, that detailed moment. Isaiah, some 600 years before it ever happened, lays out for us what happens at Golgotha with incredible detail. Notice what else he says. Not only do we have the good news that Jesus died for us, but we have the good news that he was raised from the dead. Look at verse 4. It says that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive. Paul says, get this, church at Corinth, I've got people, there are witnesses still alive today that were there at that moment in Galilee with 500 people who saw Jesus alive. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't Casper the ghost. He had a body. You could see the scars. You could see the wounds. You could see where, where the thorns had been in his skull. You could, see, you could see the piercings in his hands. You could see all that. Why do I know that? Because Thomas saw it in the upper room. Folks, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus Christ died on a cross in Jerusalem. There is historical fact outside the Bible that the Romans convicted a man named Jesus and put him on a cross at the wishes of Jewish leaders. There is historical evidence outside the Bible that says that Jesus died on that cross. And they say that Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb. And that Jesus, after three days, something amazing and miraculous happened. And there is data outside the Bible that says that a tomb became empty that once had a body in it. You've got to wrestle with that. You've got to wrestle with that. Paul says that the foundation of the church, the foundation of life and peace, the foundation of love and grace is found in a death, a burial, and a resurrection. He says right here that we saw him. We saw him alive. The church had people in it that didn't believe that. The church today has people in it that don't believe it. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you bought into the world idea that miracles don't happen. You're a, you're, you're a skeptic. You're very skeptical of all of this. And the only reason you're here today is because somebody invited you or you were pressured into coming. And quite frankly, you're skeptical. But let, let me talk to you just a moment. You do your own work. I challenge you. Don't just be a skeptic. Be an informed skeptic. I challenge you. Get into all of the evidence, and I'll be glad to help you with it. We can have all the conversations you want to have. But let me tell you where this is going to end up. You can go look at the evidence. You can look at the Bible evidence. You can look at all the outside evidence about what happened in Jerusalem, about that empty tomb, about what the Romans did to try to cover it up. And I'll tell you where you're going to end up. You're going to end up right back at this moment right here today where you have to wrestle with the idea that a man who was dead three days came back to life. And if he did, if he did, that demands something from you. Compare that to every other world religion. Compare that to Muhammad. Compare that to Buddha. Any other religion you want to put on the table, go ahead. I'll tell you what you'll find. You'll find dead prophets, dead teachers who are still dead to this day. But when you look at Jesus, you'll find a resurrected king, a resurrected Lord, who overcame death, hell, and the grave, and is going to come back one day and hold you accountable. That's where it leads. So, skeptics. I would love to have that conversation with you because you're looking for a changed life in all the wrong places and you'll never find it. He says, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul's going to put some flesh on this whole discussion. He's going to say this. He says, look, you know where I came from. If you look back in Paul's history, what do you find? You find a murderer. You, you have a guy who was filled with hate. 
You have a guy who was trying to destroy the church? You have a guy who was ratting everyone out? You have a guy who's standing and holding the coats while Stephen is being stoned to death simply because he believed in Jesus and proclaimed it? But the Paul you have now is a Paul who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, who plants some 22-plus churches, who proclaims the gospel everywhere he goes, and he actually says that to die for him would be to gain. He, he actually says that his life is about Jesus Christ and him crucified, nothing else. Not Judaism, not the law, not the temple. A man who was about all of that for most of his life is now saying without any hesitation, none of that means nothing. All of that means nothing. As a matter of fact, he will say that all of that is like, well, horse manure. He does. He says it. It's dung, horse manure. He says that all that he had before was useless, but now I preach Christ and him crucified. How could a guy go from being a murderer and a guy filled with hate to, to this kind of guy? Well, Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. The people you know, the people you know that have had a radical change in their life, the people you know that used to be one way and now they're this, how did that happen? Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. Their faith in that. You would love to have a life change. You would love to be no longer ruled by your addictions. You'd love to be no longer ruled by the world. You would love to be able to live a life that makes a difference. You'd love to be able to have an understanding of what your purpose is. You, you'd love to be able to know, why am I here? How do we find that out? Jesus' crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and your faith in it. We can, we can go around and around this circle all day. You know where I'm coming back to, the foundation. This is the good news that the world needs. This is what we need to be talking about. This is where we need to focus our time and attention. This is what deals with the fear that everybody's dealing with. This is what deals with the anger, that, that just explosive anger where people's fuses are short. What do they need? What do they need to hear about? Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. So we need reminding. The bad news is there are some who heard and have rejected. Maybe that's you. You've heard and you've rejected. Or you fall in love more with the rituals than you have Jesus. Well, I got some bad news for you. The rituals will never give you the peace you're looking for. The good news is, is that Jesus died for you. The good news is, is that Jesus resurrected. And, and the good news that we know is the good news that this world needs to hear. How do they hear it? How do they hear about this? They're not going to hear it from the news. They're not going to hear it from their podcast more than likely, they're going to hear from you because you have experienced it. Who better person to hear it from than you? They don't need to hear more about what you feel about masks. They don't need to hear more about what you feel about vaccines or no vaccines or shutdowns or anything. They need to hear what can change their life. My goodness, folks, if we have been talking about Jesus for the last 20 months, as much as we've been talking about a pandemic, we would finally see the revival we've been longing for. And that includes me as well. We need reminding. Distractions are plentiful. We need more gospel conversations. See, I dare you to do this. I just, I'm going to dare you to do it. 
and do it today or tomorrow, whatever it happens. You got some family, you got some friends, you got some acquaintances. You're a Jesus follower. You are not believing in vain. You've had a change of life. Then I dare you, follower of Jesus, today, tomorrow, that person that you know is afraid, angry, far from Jesus in your conversation today. Ask them this question, who do you believe Jesus to be? Start the conversation. Who do you believe Jesus to be? What do you, what do you think about Jesus? You know, I, I follow him. He changed my life. I used to be this, and I met Jesus, and he changed my life. And, you know, I've always wondered, I've always wondered what you believe about him. Can we have that conversation? I'll even buy you some coffee. I'll, I'll take you out to lunch. I'll get you something out of the vending machine. But can we have that conversation? Church, can we start having those conversations? Can we stop talking about masks and talk about Jesus? Can we do that? Lord, have mercy. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about whether you wear a mask when you talk about it or not. It doesn't matter to me. Just bring Jesus up. Let's have some gospel conversations this week, even today. We need to keep our focus, church. I said at the very beginning of this that there are churches that have, well, they went off into oblivion now. So far from the gospel, so far from the crucifixion, so far from the resurrection, they've become a social club and nothing more. And we need to be sure where we stand. Paul said he was a persecutor of the church. He said, I was once this, I met Jesus, now I'm this. Do you have that testimony? Can you say, I was once that, I met Jesus, and now I'm this person? Can you say that? Can you see, can you see transition? Can you see changes in your life? Can you see that you're a different person today than you were then? Well, if you can't, then you may be believing in vain. And that should shake you to the core. Because belief in vain will not cross you over into the kingdom, only belief in a crucified, resurrected Jesus. That's the only way. Father, we thank you for your goodness and the clarity of your word, and may it not be wasted today. We know that it won't be. Your word says about itself that it will not return void, so we trust that. Now in this moment, I pray that you would deal with hearts of people for those who've never put their faith in you, for the skeptic here today, for the skeptic watching online this morning, Father, I pray that they would see with new, fresh eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit that there's something here, something they haven't seen before, something they haven't considered, and that maybe, just maybe, there is life to be found in Christ Jesus. For the believers in the room, Father, I pray that we can start talking about something else, something that matters, something that gives life, encouragement, peace, joy. We'd not be afraid or ashamed. That, Father, we'd be faithful with this gospel, the gospel of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that we'd be faithful to share how that's changed our life and how it can change theirs. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church.